Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we got a special guest from the great state of Georgia, Stuart Keene. Stuart, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be on here and talk about some mountain whitetails. How are y'all doing? Oh, dude, I'm doing good. Just coming off this Georgia hunt, uh, me and Jacob are going to tell a little bit more of our side of that hunt on this coming week's outro, along with some other stuff uh, that people find interesting. So make sure you tune in for that Thursday episode. But uh, Jacob, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing very well. Yeah. Stuart, very excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, this is going to be an interesting discussion because we're actually having this conversation after we just got done hunting the mountains of Georgia. So, uh, and you and me had talked a little bit before this episode, and it's taken us a little while to kind of get this episode lined up, but it's going to be interesting to kind of see 
what you typically see up there in the mountains versus like what we saw and kind of maybe some similarities and differences between the two and, and also things we should probably do different next time uh, we go yeah. to Georgia. But so real quick to kind of get us started, uh, give the audience a l- little bit of your background about growing up and hunting in like the more mountainous region of Georgia. Right. Okay. So I'm from Northern Georgia, which most people, uh, they relate that, they relate that to Atlanta. Uh, but I'm actually a little bit farther north of there. So I'm closer to that North Carolina, Tennessee border. Um, I wish we had some of the, the deer that they grow, uh, closer to Atlanta. I'm sure y'all have seen that, but, uh, I'm a little bit higher up, a uh, little bit more elevation. So uh, I've been here my whole life. This is kind of where I cut my teeth on deer hunting, uh, which growing up, my family, my dad, he only deer hunted. So that's what I knew growing up. And we had some permission for some uh, some private places, and uh, which is a lot different from public when you get in a higher elevation. So uh, that's sort of how I cut my teeth. And it wasn't until um, I reached the age where I could get my uh, hunter uh, safety certificate and hunt on my own. That's when I started uh, exploring some land. Um, I had some relatives that owned a small piece of property that bordered uh, National Forest. But that's sort of where I ventured out and started uh, trying the more mountainous thing, uh, which is a little bit different from just hunting on private land and basically meat hunting, which is what I grew up doing. So uh, it wasn't until I got more into high school that I started venturing out, um, which is definitely a little bit different than just shooting, you know, it's brown, it's down, and, and hunting the private land stuff. So. Uh, that's that's definitely where I found my my love for it, and uh, up until recently, that's all I knew. So uh, it's definitely a different ball game if you're from the the flatlands. So it's uh, it's definitely an interesting topic to talk about. Absolutely, and Stuart, you're part of a, a group that uh, we're good friends with, which is the Hunting Ground on YouTube, and you do a lot of self filming. Been doing that for a little while, which kind of goes into a, a story I want to ask you about, uh, which we talked about before we started recording, which is you know North Georgia has a ton of bears. Okay. And you were mentioning like your dad was just a deer hunter. He really didn't do anything else. Upbringing and hunting some of these different properties and stuff like that. What was like your encounter with bears and everything kind of early on? And at what point did you ever decide that like, I'm actually going to try to, you know, hunt a bear instead of just focusing maybe exclusively just on the deer as well? Right. So growing up, we really didn't see many bears, which I mentioned that relative's property that was close to National Forest. That's that's where I saw most of my bears, but like deer hunting, where we hunted, it was in the bottomland, which those deer, it's like night and day. Like, just, just for clarification, I'm not trying to discount anyone's deer that they kill in flatland or something, but um, for purpose of the conversation, mountain deer that live up, say, you know, 5,000 feet or something like that is way different than the bottomland deer, you know, that might be behind someone's subdivision or something. So where I'm at, our, our baseline elevation is probably 1,900 feet, but uh, my county actually has the highest point in Georgia, which is almost 5,000 feet. So uh, venturing out of that is a different ball game than, say, starting at, at the baseline elevation. So um, how I grew up, we never really saw any bears whenever we were deer hunting. It just wasn't a thing. You know, we shot a lot of spikes. That's something that, that we did. Uh, shot a lot of does. So uh, bear encounters then didn't really happen. Uh, but whenever uh, I started venturing out, probably, I guess it's been 10 years ago now, and started running trail cameras, uh, that's when I found an aggravation for the bears. Because um, for whatever reason, a bear can sniff down a trail camera. I'm not sure what it is, if it's the batteries or just the scent of the plastic. But if you put out a trail camera in the mountains, uh, you better be pretty strategic with it, or you're going to have some bear tooth holes in it pretty quick. So. Uh, whenever I started venturing out on my own and getting back uh, in higher elevation and running trail cameras trying to find, you know, the true mountain whitetails that everyone speak about, 
uh, that's when I ran into the Bears. So uh, growing up, you know, my dad always heard the rumor. A lot of people say it. Uh, they even say it about whitetail if you don't prepare it correctly. But uh, with bears, it was, you know, bears are greasy and uh, the meat's not good to eat. So uh, that's sort of uh, the idea that I had in my mind. And it wasn't until uh, later through high school, you know, that I learned a little bit more about processing and how to handle meat. And that's when I uh, realized that I wanted to try to target bears more, um, which I've only killed one. I've let a lot walk. Um, but actually, uh, UGA did a study on one of our local uh, wildlife management areas, and they basically uh, honed in on fawns, and they put a collar on them, and they concluded that uh, most of the predation on uh, whitetail fawns was bobcats and uh, black bears. So they were a huge contributor um, to the whitetail fawn death rate. And that's when I sort of changed my mindset on it and decided that I wanted to uh, start targeting bears more which I know is not what we're talking about, but uh, that's definitely one thing that uh, needs to be controlled around here. So uh, they can be uh, a bit of a problem whenever you're trying to scout and also run cameras for deer. Uh, but that's not that's not the main thing I focus on, obviously, but uh, I've only I've only killed one. But uh, they're definitely a factor whenever you're trying to target these mountain deer for sure. So Stuart, like in the area of the country that you're in and how just remote and rugged it is, what has been one of the like hardest challenges about say like targeting say a mature whitetail, especially on some of the public land that you hunt? And, and with that, like what's been like one of the most challenging aspects? What's been one of the most rewarding aspects about when you actually do connect on a mature whitetail up there in the mountains? Right. So one of the most challenging things I would say, and a lot of people cannot relate to this, but it's burning yourself out because when you go out in the woods, like you're waking up early or you're getting off work and you're you're putting the boot leather and you're hiking deep in the mountains, you want to see something. Like, you want to see a deer, you want to at least find deer sign. And where I'm from, I know a lot of people say this, and a lot of people like to claim it. I'm not one of those guys, and I'm not trying to say this, but we're in a low deer density area. And a lot of people like to claim that, like they're cooler because they kill a deer there. I don't think that way. If you have to work hard for a deer, it's an awesome kill. But when you're in a low deer density area, you have to have that mindset. Uh, For instance, I like to save a Georgia tag, which we get two buck tags, plus you can kill more deer if you hunt uh, certain wildlife management area hunts where you get a bonus tag that doesn't count toward your state tags. Well, I like to save a tag. Uh, we go to, uh, and hunt down in south, uh, east or southwest Georgia. Um, it's not a managed lease or anything. It's just a pecan farm. And the difference between down there and up here is night and day. Um, and the biggest challenge in the mountains is having that mindset you might sit half day a morning and evening and you may not see a deer and that's just something that you have to go into it beforehand knowing that you may not see that deer but having that confidence that you could see one versus in south georgia when we go down there we we typically go down there in november and then in late december every year and when i go down there i'm super excited because it's like hunting a zoo compared to the mountains and i'm not trying to make it sound like the south georgia guys have it any easier than us but whenever you go down there if you mess up on an opportunity or you see a buck, he might come back through an hour later. You might see him, especially if it's deer in the rut. So the mindset down there is if you screw up or something like that, you can have that good mindset like, hey, a mature buck might come through 20 minutes later. Versus in the mountains, when you're hunting the low deer density, you might have a doe group that's six or seven does, three or five does, and then your bucks, they tend to work in circuits, which is very hard to explain. And y'all might have heard other people talk about this. 
but it's not like an ag land or something like that where they're bedding in a certain area and then they're traveling to a food source. In the mountains, it is whatever resources they have, they're not very limited. So they can be wherever they want and make it work. Um, there are certain things that you can put to your advantage, but that's the challenge is narrowing that down. Because when you pull up a map and you're looking at a vast expanse of just straight up timber and mountains, um, it can be intimidating. So that's one of the biggest challenges I would say is keeping a good mindset and then also allowing yourself to narrow it down um, where you can get in on that buck. And also timing is another big thing, like early season versus late season. So uh, and as far as the most rewarding thing, I would say whenever you finally find that sign or finally set up in a certain location, and maybe your confidence is a little bit down, but then you see that deer movement coming your way, and it's like, okay, this is it. You know, this is about to happen. So uh, there's definitely a lot of different aspects um, because just like the mountains are broad, you know, that can be a bit of a broad question. But um, screwing up in South Georgia and screwing up in the North Georgia mountains are two different things, and killing a deer in the mountains is definitely a different thing. So uh, it's rewarding for sure. Yeah, and with that, I, I want to kind of dive into – more about what you guys do and what you do and what you've learned the last, you know, say six, seven, eight years up there. Um, but first, one thing that I, I'm very curious with is with the habitat, the train, everything like that. Since your dad, your, your, your dad sounds like a lot of other people I know that, you know, are just, you know, the general deer hunter, but maybe they're not just overly technical when it comes to deer hunting they just go deer hunt they go provide meat for their family and everything like that but they don't really they might not get into the weeds of stuff as like maybe some of us may think and a lot of our listeners may think and also the viewers what's been some of the biggest challenges for you especially like did you have any other mentors that kind of taught you about from the scouting aspect you know looking at understanding topo maps understanding aerial imagery the scouting you know the different kind of train features to focus on and all that kind of stuff or was that a lot, lot more kind of self-taught and how did you kind of take that and run with it? That's actually uh, funny you asked that question because that's actually where my brain was going. And uh, once again, if I say anything, I'm not trying to be condescending to any other kind of hunter. But um, growing up, to answer your question, no. Um, basically, I learned certain things from my dad, you know, the basics. And he, he killed a lot of deer, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to discount that. But uh, I know some people that their grandpa has spots in the mountains and they still go there to this day and kill deer. And like my family, my grandpa and my dad moved here from Florida in the eighties. So we don't have that lineage of having property or the knowledge or this forest service road or anything like that, where you have that historical data to bank on. And uh, a lot of this, like I relate it to turkey hunting because my dad did turkey hunt. Being self-taught gives you so much more confidence because you don't have anything to fall back on. You are learning from the animals themselves, and I don't think that can be overrated because they are the best teachers in the woods. The same with turkeys. It's the same with whitetails because you don't have some historical spot, historical spot to fall back on. Whenever you are learning from the animals themselves, you're going to have that confidence where when you're in a new area where you don't have some tree to go climb. Um, it's definitely going to give you that advantage. So um, whenever I was kind of exploring the public lands, uh, well, that was after I got my hunter safety certificate, like I mentioned earlier, um, I started uh, going up in the mountains and I hunted one ridge, which is very similar, you know, to how I grew up hunting. You went in, you hunted one spot, you know, a tree stand with screw-in steps that have been there for years. So that was my mindset. And uh, my first two seasons, I hunted a ladder stand that we carried up in the mountains, which now sounds crazy compared to the setup I use now. 
Uh, but we had a ladder stand up there, and I, you know, I killed a bear. I killed a few hogs out of it. Uh, I killed some does and some spikes, which back then on National Forest, you could kill does. Uh, they've since changed the regulations, and uh, now it's buck only on National Forest. Uh, but I still remember the day, it was during the rut, I climbed down out of my ladder stand and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back in the mountains and I'm gonna, going to explore a little bit, which back then, that's probably been nine or ten years ago, you didn't have hunt stand or onyx or anything, so you just had to remember how to get your way back out of there. Um, so I still remember going up in the mountains and I found this big scrape uh, about half the size of a car hood. And I was like, okay, this is, this is what deer sign looks like back here. Um, which we can talk about that later, but that's what led to me killing the biggest deer I've still killed to this day. But uh, basically venturing out a little bit is what gave me that confidence to kind of be like, okay, you know what, you don't have to hunt the same tree. Uh, you can explore uh, around a little bit, which even now to this day has led into two different types of hunting that I do. And that is still hunting in an area where you have confidence, where you want to climb a certain tree and then slip hunting or, or whatever you call that. I, I know there's different terms, but basically no stand, your rifle on your back, and you're strategically moving through, hoping to walk up or jump a buck. So that's two different types of hunting that I do now, but that first initial hunt that led to the big buck that I killed um, is what kind of expanded you know, my opportunities a little bit and got me out of that mindset of sitting in a certain parcel of woods, if that makes sense. I'll, I want to jump right into that that buck that you just mentioned so you you were kind of focused in on this one ridge and then you kind of spread your wings and you kind of started going out a little bit uh what was that progression like where you ended up finding that that scrape and then eventually tagging that buck like what was that what was that journey like right so uh where i was hunting um to put this into perspective um it's private land not much at all i didn't even hunt it that bordered uh fifteen thousand acres of national forest which then bordered uh, over 30,000 acres of a wildlife management area. So you're talking about, if you zoomed out on a map, it's just mountains. There's not any sort of development. There's not clear cuts. You know, they've not done that since, I don't know how long ago they've done clear cuts around here. It's just not a thing, um, which you hear the grouse hunters complain about a lot because it's, you know, the reason for the decline of a lot of our native bird populations. But um, so whenever I decided to expand out a little bit and explore, I found this scrape. I got super excited. You know, this is not too long after trail cameras kind of got popular. This is way before cell cameras. I think this was 2013, 2012, and this is in the, the heat of our pre-rut. So um, I ended up putting a camera up on that scrape, and the scrape was kind of at the top of it. I wouldn't really call it a drainage because there wasn't a creek in it, and it wouldn't really call it a bluff. It was super subtle which is it's funny, we can talk about it later on, but still to this day, deer use that scrape 10 years later. But it was uh, basically an isolated laurel bush um, hanging over at the, at the top of a bluff wall, uh, which is also super subtle. But I put a camera on it because the scrape was the biggest I'd ever seen and the laurel bush was just destroyed. Um, and unfortunately, the first time I checked the trail camera, something malfunctioned with it where all the pictures were black. But I knew that it had been worked because the tree was uh, even more destroyed. So um, fortunately, though, the second time I checked it was just this this giant nine pointer. At first, I thought he was a ten, so we we coined his name Big Ten, which he ended up being a nine pointer. But he had these super dark black legs, uh, which I've not seen since then. But he was easy to recognize. So um, 
essentially we moved the ladder stand up to that point and uh he showed up again two weeks later which also relates to the fact that you know the mountain deer work in circuits with i don't know if y'all heard of people refer to it as that but it's like they're not a to b you might get them one day and then they don't show up until 10 12 13 days later or a week later so i got these pictures i'm freaking out uh, which at that time i'd never scored a deer i've still never scored a deer but this one we uh, ultimately got scored but um long story short i hunted for a couple days over that scrape and got a picture of him um so that was at the end of october when i got that first uh picture that was ended up being black but i knew it was him because the tree was destroyed so then fast forward about 10 days later i got pictures in the middle of november um and that time the camera functioned correctly i got pictures of this giant deer um so then probably 10 days later 10 to 13 days later on Thanksgiving day, I got pictures of him in the daylight. The first pictures were at nighttime. And uh, at that time I realized I should probably move farther up the mountain closer to a laurel thicket, which I definitely think we should talk about because to this day, that's still one of the main things that I focus on. Um, so I then left the ladder stand there and uh, I got a climbing stand. And this is kind of a funny part of the story, but uh, I set this climbing stand farther up the mountain, closer to around the 3,000 mark elevation, maybe a little bit higher. And it was at the top of this laurel thicket because the way my mindset worked at the time is this was on an open hardwood ridge at the top of a drainage, but it was a very subtle drainage. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to catch this buck in daylight, I might as well move closer to a laurel thicket where he might be bedding. So uh, keep in mind, this is the first time I've killed a deer bigger than a spike. So uh, my brother and I carried a climbing stand up there, and uh, there was an old timer that hunted the same parcel. And this this area doesn't get a lot of pressure because it's super landlocked on one side by private land, and then the back side is you'd have to walk a long way to get there. Um, so, anyways, uh, one weekend my brother and I carried a climbing stand up there, and uh, based off what I'd heard from an old timer that hunted the same area, he said, "Man." I, I know there's good deer up there, but it's super hard to access because you spook everything when you walk in there. So I'm not sure what led me to this, but I thought, okay, if we can rake a path into this area and walk in silently where you're you're virtually making no noise getting in there. And that was in, I was in high school. My younger brother helped me. These days, I wouldn't spend that much time doing this. But we grabbed some leaf rakes, and we raked a path from that climber all the way back down the mountain, about 300 yards to where that ladder stand was by the scrape. So uh, I hunted it one morning farther up, closer to this laurel thicket, and I saw a spike. And at this point in the season, once I got pictures of that buck, I wasn't shooting anything else. I was solely focused on this buck because I had a little bit of pressure because my dad heard of, I told my dad about it, told my brother about it. You know, they freak out about a buck that size. Uh, so I really wanted to kill this deer at this point. So I think I hunted that on a weekend and saw that little spike. It was like a foggy morning, uh, which leads me to that Monday. Uh, of course, the path is raked, the stand is set, and uh, I had a lot of schoolwork to do uh, that particular evening. And I later found out my mom almost told me to not even go up there. Um, but I went up there anyways on a Monday evening. And it was a pretty cooler evening. I mean, it was uh, at this point, I don't think I mentioned, but this is like the first week of December. Uh, which we can talk about our rut later on, but uh, any, anyways, I hiked up there. 
I'm up in my climber, super quiet, and I'd been in maybe 20 minutes. And uh, to this day, I still remember I, I heard a woodpecker take off, a pileated woodpecker, which I'm sure you all know what that sounds like. And shortly thereafter, I heard footsteps coming down the mountain, and uh, ultimately, it was that giant buck, uh, and I was able to take a shot on him. But uh, my theory to this day is that he was bedded up there, and whenever he stood up, he was bedded within 100 yards of me, I think. And he spooked that woodpecker whenever he stood up. He was walking down the mountain, like, all stiff-legged, and uh, I was able to shoot him right then. Um which not that it matters, but uh, he was one of the biggest deer killed in our county since like the '80s. I think he's still one of the top top couple deer killed. Um, which I didn't put a tape on him. The taxidermist did. He, he was a uh, mid 150s uh, green score. Actually, after drying, he was still mid 150s. But uh, what made that deer unique, and in a lot of the mountains is luck. I'm not trying to make myself sound like I'm any better than anyone else, but you have to adapt to the different areas. And in that specific scenario. Like like that old timer told me, he was like, I never even hunted that area because of how hard it was to access closer to that laurel thicket versus hunting the hardwoods nearby, which I have another story we can talk about that was more recent. But uh, shortly thereafter, that old timer started breaking paths himself, you know, to get to get in there silently. But um, I definitely think that access is a big a big factor. And then the mountain laurels are a big fact, a big factor. So. Um, that was a long-winded story, but um, essentially that was what gave me my start into changing my mindset from um, hunting more flatland, you know, around subdivisions, that sort of thing, versus going out to the deer that, in my mind, probably rarely never see a person or whatever. Um, so that's a long-winded story of saying that's what gave me my introduction um, into that buck. And then I also have another buck I can talk about um, that I killed in the same spot a few years later. but. Uh, that's basically what got me my start into changing my mindset. So I, I want to definitely talk about the importance of cover in the mountains uh, and like how mountain laurel plays such a factor for you guys, because, you know, anyone that's been in, you know, this is truly like a big wood setting uh, area that doesn't get a lot of clear cut activity. Um, so very little logging activity, if any logging activity. Um, so you don't have a ton of like thick understory like you would in areas been clear cut, which a lot of us in the deep South, you know, if you hunt anywhere around logging, you understand how thick that stuff can get, uh, especially after a clear cuts come through for the next, you know, eight, 10 years, um, up there with the lack of that kind of cover, I know mountain laurel plays a big factor for you, but is there any other cover type that seems like these mature bucks really like to hone in on and especially travel, you know, travel through, travel around or bed in that's something that you like to key in on, whether it's, you can see it on an aerial map or when you actually put boots on the ground, something that you like to kind of focus on. Right. So that's a really good question. And, uh, I've listened to, to podcasts that y'all have done and I don't know if mountain hunters do this on purpose or if it's just the fact that it's the only term that I know. Um, but have y'all heard the term ivy used to describe the different types of cover in the mountains? Have y'all heard that? Yep, I have. Okay, so that, okay, that confused me the first time I heard it because I'm like, ivy, what are they talking about? So I've looked into it a little bit, and there is, I think they refer to mountain laurel and rhododendron as the same plant. I don't really know if it's like old mountain terminology or something, but it's two different things. And uh, cover in the mountains, just to, to start off the conversation, I relate that strictly to mountain laurel. Like that is so big of a part of what I do and rhododendron doesn't even matter to me. And I can explain why. Um, 
but you hear them say Ivy a lot, and I'm not sure which one they're referring to. Um, I've not talked to an old uh, old timer to really to really understand that. But you have rhododendron, which is strictly almost 90% going to grow in your creek bottoms, and Mount Laurel will too because they both like soil that drains well, and then they both like shade, which in your bottoms, whether it's north facing or south facing, because of the mountains, you get a lot of shade down there. And they like uh, soil that drains really well. And a lot of our creeks actually run underground until they pop out. You know, it looks like a spring head. So um, rhododendron is like a longer, like probably four to to nine inch leaf. And then your mountain laurel is a shorter, probably three inch, um, really waxy leaf, which I'm sure y'all are familiar with that. You have that in northern Alabama. And rhododendron, though, is pretty much strictly re- related to creek bottoms, and that's what you see a lot of your hog sign in and stuff like that. Mountain laurel's hard to walk through. Rhododendron is nearly impossible to walk through. Yes. Like, it'll make you lose your mind trying to walk through through uh, rhododendron. So um, we can go into the weeds on that if you want to, but creek bottoms, um, have y'all done a podcast where someone called uh, called it negative terrain? Oh, yeah. Is it the deer? Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know who that was, but I've heard that term. Creek bottoms to me are negative terrain, and some of them you wouldn't even want to walk through anyways, um, which my theory on that is, number one, you don't see an escape route down there. Like, that's where you see your predators, like your bobcats, your coyotes, your hog wallows. That's where they hang out is down there, where it's hard to walk through, and it would be even harder for a deer to escape out of there if you jumped it. Uh, So Mount Laurel, it likes the shade. So if you can find a north-facing ridge, uh, which is actually uh, where I killed that buck and the other buck, which we can talk about. It's a north-facing ridge. So down in the bottoms, you have that super thick mountain laurel, which deer will travel through, but as far as hunting it, you might as well forget it. Like, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Just because they don't hang out down there, they might cross through it. But on a north-facing ridge, because it doesn't like sun, and north-facing ridges don't get a lot of sun, it will grow higher up the mountain. So then you have the opportunity to have that cover farther up the mountain but it's also not as thick as it is in the bottom because you get some sun higher up on the mountain, even though it's north facing. So that mountain laurel will grow up there, but sometimes it will grow in stages. So you have like really thick, less thick, even less thick. And sometimes there will be an open band in between these patches. So then you have the ability or a deer has the ability to bed in there. They can see down through it because it grows a little bit more open. And then they can also dive off of that and get away from anything that, say it's coming up the mountain or down the mountain. So um, that's where that's where mountain laurel is super important to me because uh, they will bed in that a lot, which I know a lot of people, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and people tend to say that they bed on the edges of it, or ivy as they call it, uh, but they will definitely get in that stuff, and uh, that's a whole other topic as far as trying to hunt that. But um, definitely uh, understanding mountain laurel as far as where it grows in the bottoms versus higher up, yeah, that that's a really interesting subject because we talk a lot about thickets on this show and and getting in the thicket and whether it be a pine thicket, mountain laurel, you know, whatever the case may be, cattails. But one thing that we don't talk about very often is there is such a thing as too thick. I mean, that does exist. Uh, yeah. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. So that's really interesting to hear you talk about. Uh, basically, trying to find a less dense mountain laurel patch. Uh, let me ask you one thing. Do you ever find really good deer activity in like a patch of mountain laurel that is like really big, really mature mountain laurel? And what I mean by that is where the mountain laurel's grown up out of the ground, it's like 
it's pretty sizable. I mean, it's like as big around as your calf, and it goes up, and you can almost like walk underneath it. You know, it's like a little. There's a canopy, you know, just above your head, but it's not super dense down at the ground level. You can kind of see up under it. Is that what you're talking about, or is it still a little bit thicker than that? Well, I've never really encountered that, to be honest. Like, most of, most of our mountain laurel is more like like the largest you might see is the size of your arm. So we never really see those giant canopies. I'm not sure, like, if that's something you experience farther south or not. Um, but farther up toward the North Carolina-Tennessee border, like where I'm at, you don't really see it get to that point where it's that large. Um, I've definitely seen some of that closer to the creek bottoms, but I've never seen it where it's that open where you can look under it unless it's farther up the mountains where it gets more sunlight penetration. So uh, that's a question I can't really answer because I've never quite experienced it where it's that large of a canopy that's that tall necessarily. So um, that would be my take on that, that I've never, I've never quite experienced it where it's that large. Well, when it comes to deer using that mountain laurel, is it is it kind of a mix of how thick it is plus the maybe the terrain feature that it's growing on? Um, where it, like let's just say that you're seeing deer bedding in it or just traveling through it or just general like there's deer in there. Is there ever is it does it need to be like in close proximity to a saddle? Does it need to be on a certain kind of slope? Like is there any kind of pattern to it or is it really just mainly focused on the the cover and not so much the terrain? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, but you definitely don't want it to be too thick and you don't want to be close to a bottom, which I'm, I don't want to speak in absolutes because there's so many variables and the mountains are so complex, but you definitely don't want to be where it's so thick closer to a bottom because that that's just not good in general. Like I wouldn't recommend anyone hunting creek bottoms in the mountains unless they found like some white oak tree dropping or something because that's typically where they are if you're going to find them. But as far as laurel thickets go, if you can find one near a terrain feature, which one of my favorites, and I'm sure you'll talk about this, and it might be overused a little bit, but drainages are highly underestimated, in my opinion, in the mountains. Because when you pull up a map, you can pick out those, like say a drainage, which when I'm speaking of a drainage, I'm talking about something that maybe used to, creep, used to be a creek bed, or maybe it's still a creek bed, and it runs all the way up the mountain on a main ridge system, and say it's going up the mountain and you have like a finger ridge on both sides and then the drainage sort of ends and there might even be a little bit of a flat spot. And in the mountains, a lot of times there's logging roads, like old roadbeds that are cut through there, um, which might have saplings growing up on them or, or whatever. And that's where the deer, because they're not down in the bottoms, that's where they cross through. It's like the easiest point to cross from drain from one side of a big bowl to the other. So if you have, a say, a, a laurel thicket in close proximity, to one of those drainages and it's higher up a mountain, it's going to be less thick and they can sit there and look down at that whole bowl. Plus, depending on the wind direction, you know, they can bed facing different ways, but that's like security cover. Um, and like Jacob and I talked about before, so much changes from, from September to later in the season and say a spot that's super hot in the rut or later in the season may not be as hot um in early season because say you have a shady north facing ridge which has great mountain laurel in early season and a lot of these drainages um you get sort of that loose moist soil and like for instance a few years ago we had high winds come through after a hurricane off the coast and a lot of big mature timber fell which allows sunlight in so these drainages can look like a jungle uh, which i can send you all a picture so in early season they will bed in the drainage itself because they have all this thick, high stem count cover, like small saplings, sour woods, that sort of thing, um, even briars up that high. So they can sit there and feel perfectly safe looking down the drainage. 
but from say early season until September or until November, late October, when the leaves fall off, you're left with the mountain laurel. That is their cover once all the leaves fall off. So um, as far as narrowing it down, which I'm sorry if I'm giving long-winded answers, but there's a lot here to, to talk about. So whenever you pull up a map and you're scouting, you really should use wintertime imagery because that allows you to see the different uh, like coniferous forests and mountain laurel. Because if it's just all leaf on, you're not going to really know what's going on. So like when you scout an area, say in the bottom land where you had your fields, your subdivisions, your uh, creek bottoms, it's super easy to narrow down because the deer is not going to walk through a field in daylight necessarily. It's not going to walk through someone's backyard. Well, if you turn on wintertime imagery in the mountains, you can see your white pine forest, uh, your Virginia pine forest, your hemlocks, which we can talk about how those look on wintertime terrain. And I don't like hunting coniferous forests at all. I don't like hunting creek bottoms at all. So you can kind of uh, narrow things down by seeing that on wintertime imagery. And then you can pick out your laurel thickets that are up higher, closer to a drainage. And that's where your deer hang out once the leaves fall off. Okay. I, I got more questions about that, but let's back up real quick. You said the word bowl like four times. Can you define what you're calling a bowl? Okay. Uh, so once again, my terminology may not line up with whatever, you know, the modern day terminology is as far as uh, the different terrain features. And y'all feel free to correct me on whatever I say. But whenever you have a main ridge, let's just for uh, ease, ease of terms, let's say north to south, and you have these finger ridges that come off, say east to west off of them, there are creeks everywhere in the mountains. Like there's water everywhere. Uh, I think we're, we're uh, considered a, a sort of a temperate rainforest here. Like we get a lot of rain for the most part. Some years we have dry, dry years. But so we have creek drainages that come off these mountains. They sort of look like your hand. If you were to picture your knuckles as the north to south and then your fingers coming off as north to west. In between your fingers, you have drainages, some of them really skinny, some of them really wide, which we can talk about that because shot opportunities and those vary drastically. But in those fingers, you have um, the tops of them are really skinny or thin, and the bottoms of, bottoms of them are really wide, um, which allow for easier travel at the top because it's more narrow. And then down below, if you were to walk those or deer to walk those, it's much more strenuous. And everyone knows that deer take the path of least resistance. So if they're living up there at that higher elevation, it doesn't even make sense for them to cross through the bottoms, down one finger, up another, much shorter. And you'll learn this, especially turkey hunting or slip hunting in the mountains. Get up high, quick as possible, and walk up there. You can cover way more ground versus being down, up and down, up and down in the bottoms. So uh, in those drainages or bowls, as you asked about, Sometimes they are much wider at the top and they split into two different drainages up at the top because it's two different creeks that meet maybe midway up the mountain. So um, I know a lot of people talk about how deer only live in thickets and they don't come out in you know, the pretty woods, as they call it. But they absolutely do, especially in areas where there's not a lot of pressure, um, which pressure, in my opinion, is way overrated. Um, it's not banking on hunting pressure in my area uh, will get you nowhere, in my opinion. So. In these bowls, it's where a drainage basically is really wide at the top. But deer will still cross those because oftentimes when the bowl widens out, it becomes more flat. And then at the midpoint of that bowl is where it drops off and the creek runs really steep. Well, a deer does not want to cross there where it's essentially a waterfall, but they will cross from a laurel thicket to say another laurel thicket at the top of that bowl. 
and you turn on wintertime imagery and you have a laurel thicket and a big bowl, which you can switch back and forth between, uh, like say a topo map where you can see, identify those bowls. And then you switch it to wintertime imagery. You have a laurel thicket and a very large bowl. That's a great place for a deer to cross from one point to say it's bedding um, where it feels secure. So um, to answer your question, a bowl is say two drainages that come together or just a very wide part of a um, north to south ridge or I'm sorry, east to west finger off a of north to south ridge. Okay, so are you... You, you gave the example. I love using your hand as an example because it's so easy. Everybody's got hands. and uh, Almost. Mo most everyone has hands. Um, <laughs> most people. <laughs> uh, so, like, if your knuckles are going north to south and your fingers right. coming off or, like, facing to the east or west, uh, are you hunting, like, at the head of those drainages, basically in between two fingers, and you're hunting where deer are cutting around the top of that drainage, so basically in between two knuckles? Absolutely. And if you can find an old logging road or roadbed, which those are cut everywhere in the mountains. And I know like what's become popular recently is like LIDAR technology, where if you turn on LIDAR, you can see those. They look like the little lines running in the mountains. Those are old logging roads that were cut who knows how long ago. Uh, but oftentimes they won't have, you know, you can still walk them fairly well. And the deer use those like crazy. They're, they can be deer highways if they're in a certain spot. So uh, at the head of those drainages, that is the easiest spot for a deer to cross because that's when the drainage gets skinny, like closer up toward your knuckle. So they're not walking through a big bottom. They're walking at the skinniest point of that from A to B, um, which we can talk about that more later because, uh, I mean, you can ask anyone, and this is my personal opinion, um, mountain deer, you, if you get a mountain deer on camera twice in the same day, you better be in there because that's just not how they work, in my opinion. They will, they'll show up one day and then you'll see them again six, seven, eight days later, say working a scrape or traveling through a trail because their resources aren't limited. So they can be wherever they want on this big expanse of a map. Um, the, only, the only point I would say that varies is in early season if they happen to be honed in on a feed tree or late season if they happen to be honed in on a certain rural thicket close to a, a doe group or something. Um, but as far as it's the drainages, uh, that's a great way to narrow down deer travel is at the top of drainages. So that's my answer on that one. Okay. Now I'm, I'm also really curious about when you're looking at those, cause I, I've, I've done a lot of looking at the tops of drainages, like what you're talking about. Uh, and it, even in the few times that we've gone to some mountainous areas, uh, that's one of the first things I sought out was the head of some, some steeper drainages. When you're up there, especially being that you're in a low deer density area, what is it that you look for up there to determine whether or not that spot is actually worth hunting? Like, does there need to be like a pretty nice deer trail or are you just looking for just random punch holes in the leaves? I mean, what tells you that that is something worth hunting from a deer sign perspective? So that can be confusing. Um, now, I want to say that this just doesn't apply to just North Georgia. I think it applies to the whole Appalachian Mountain region, which stretches a, a pretty big stretch. But I don't, want to, I don't want people to think that this only applies to where I'm at, because you can take these things and apply them to really any mountainous area. But as far as honing in on deer sign, are you asking about like boots on the ground or before I even get in there? But let's uh let's go in order. So what what does it take for you to walk to a spot like that and put in the effort? And then once you put in that effort and you go to that spot and you do boots on the ground, what are you looking for on the ground? 
Um, okay, so I guess I should have narrowed that down even more, but I'll just answer it for one side of the question. There's really two different sorts of hunting, which is, you know, setting up a tree stand versus slip hunting. And uh, I do slip hunting a lot, like just walking along and covering ground, like what you spoke about doing in Georgia where you walked for five hours. And I mainly do that whenever I go to these wildlife management area hunts, which allow like a bonus tag, which I would recommend anyone who wants to learn mountain hunting, say if they tagged out in South Georgia or whatever state and they want to come try Georgia, these uh, wildlife management areas will have certain dates where they give you a free tag. Um, and, and the state gathers info from that deer, you bring it and check it in. Um, so you basically, you have a free tag to burn. And what I will do is I will go out and just, I'll pick a certain path that's easiest to walk, like a big circuit. And I will go out at daylight and walk that big circuit and basically slip hunt deer, uh, which is, or if I just find good sign, I might come back the next day and hang a tree stand. But as, to answer your question, um, as far as like having an area that I feel confident in, Rubs are one thing, and I think those vary a lot, and we can talk about that. Like a little rub in a creek bottom, a creek bottom versus a rub uh, next to security cover, like a laurel thicket. Um, I definitely like the ones closer closer to a laurel thicket. Um, but as far as finding a good deer sign that gives me that confidence uh, in a low deer density area, if you find a lot of what you call punch holes, um, which people from the flatland may not recognize, because you know, like in South Georgia, if you're hunting a road or walking across the road and you see it's super easy to identify a deer trap, you know, it's in sand or red clay, but in the mountains, you have to pay a bit more attention because a deer track in the mountains is what you call a punch hole or just disturbance in the leaves. And you might have to follow a deer trail for five, 10, 15 feet before you actually see an identifiable deer track, you know, an impression in the leaves. So um, to answer your question, if I find droppings like deer scat, that is, that is what I look for because that's somewhere, if you find multiple of those, that's where they're hanging out. Like one or two piles of it's one thing. You find a bunch of it, they're spending some time there. And what coincides with that is you will find those deer tracks. So uh, deer trails are one thing to hone in on. I love to do that, which is opposite of what a, a lot of other people speak about when they hunt feed trees. I love to hone in on deer trails, but as far as looking for deer sign, um, Obviously, it varies between early season and late season, but let's just say for a mid-season perspective, if I'm finding tracks, deer droppings, and then also scrapes nearby, that's a money spot. Like, I, you can dissect that more, but that that's what I look for, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, do you have some? Yeah, I, I got a bunch. <laughs> I got a bunch. Andrew's, Andrew's, you know, cut my mic off. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm taking the air time over here. Uh, Stuart, with those bowls, so where we were hunting in Georgia, and we'll talk more about this on the breakdown episode that comes out Thursday, uh, one of the spots I'd found where I talked to you where I found a, a laurel bush that was – I've never seen a buck first off rub laurel, mountain laurel before. It's a really hard plant. If you, if anyone's ever uh, experienced or like had a walk through Mount Laurel or been around Mount Laurel, it's a very hard plant. It's kind of hard to break, especially if it's bigger around than like if it's bigger around than your thumb. It's it's hard to break it. And uh, we actually found where a buck had rubbed and actually snapped off a piece that was probably an inch and a half in diameter and shred every li- little limb that was on that on that piece that he'd broke. And then he he started destroying the other side of the mountain laurel bush, you know, four or five feet away, and had it skinned up where there was tine marks up to my you know chest high on it. Um, and that was in mid September when we were there. Um, and 
that was in an area right next to one of those little bowls, the head of one of those little drainages that was extremely steep. The further down that secondary point you walked, it got steep enough like you didn't want to cross it. But at the very head right. of it, towards on the very this because this is at the very top of this big ridge that we were hunting on, it was where this mountain laurel thicket was at, um, and where that rub was at. Uh, it was very gentle to be able to walk across from one secondary ridge point through that bowl to the next uh, secondary ridge point. Which again, this bowl, it kind of like certain the way you're talking about, it's, it's the head of these drainages where it kind of slopes out and it really kind of gets a lot more gentle. And there was just a ton of sign there, and that's also where we found. Uh, mountain chestnut oaks, which we're going to talk a lot about on this coming week, uh, this Thursday's episode. I've never seen deer eat mountain chestnut oaks ever. We always call them mountain oaks. Drop a huge, huge. Some acorn. people call them rock oaks. Yeah, but it's this is it's a it's a species of chestnut oaks, and typically they always drop super early. We see them a lot down in Alabama, but like I've never seen deer eat them. And I've talked to a lot of super experienced guys said they've never seen deer eat them. Well, because of the time when we were there, that was the only thing really dropping. White oaks were very few and far between dropping. They they produced really well this year. They just weren't dropping when we were there very well. And the deer in very specific spots, not every tree was like this because, I mean, a lot of the stuff you were walking through, you need a hard hat to walk under these trees because they were dropping so many acorns. <laughs> and uh, like my camera guy, I thought he got smacked on the head at one point when we were hanging a set in this bowl that we were talking about here uh, in this specific spot. But um, – there was all this crazy feed sign right below that thicket. So that thicket was right at the top of the ridge, and it kind of drops off. It's an east-west-facing slope or east-west-facing ridge that, that the mountain laurel really dropped off on the north side pretty hard and got really, really steep, and that's where all that mountain laurel was at. And based off where the rub was at and then just below that rub, next to that bowl was where all this heavy feed sign was at. I mean, tons of feed sign. Ground tore up. There was big beds there where they were feeding at night probably, just chilling. Um you know, droppings everywhere, all dropping all over the place, both fresh and new droppings. Um, and it seemed like a, a dynamite spot. And we sat there, ended up not seeing a deer specifically on that hunt. But I told my camera guy, I told I told Seth, I was like, this is a spot you come back like pre-rut, early rut, and you kill a buck working this ridge line between that mountain laurel thicket and this this bench or this uh, secondary point we're on across this bowl. This is where you sit and you don't even need a gun. Like you just take your bow and shoot him when he comes by at 35 yards because he's he gets pinched down so tight right there. Like he he unless he's coming up a super crazy steep face, which they probably will do at some point, he's going to come right here within bow range of this specific tree that we climbed. Um, and it was just kind of interesting kind of seeing that, but it's like. The correlation, and more we scouted these areas and started hunting these areas, you'd find old rut rut sign at the head of these drainages, you know, in these bowls towards like the top third of the mountain or top third of these bigger ridges we were hunting on. And uh, you'd find big scrapes, you know, torp looking bridges, huge rubs, giant rubs, like this unbelievable sign. But it's like the deer in some of these areas just weren't there right now. You know, they're there at some point, probably November, late October, but for right now, they're not there. You're not finding a lot of droppings, not finding a lot of feed sign, anything like that. But it's kind of interesting how much of a shift it seems like happens in these areas. And that's one thing I wanted to bring up with you while we're talking about terrain and cover and all this kind of stuff is how much these deer could potentially shift from September going through October into November and going to December and how they may even shift the side of the ridge they may be working. So, like, how often... Do you find a spot like early season that still is good come the rut? And then how often do you find a spot that, you know, there's nothing going on there in early season, but come late October, it's like, dude, a light switch happened, and now all those bucks are piled into a spot. Right. So you got that. You absolutely nailed that. And that that's a big learning curve. Um, 
Now, something I want to mention that I forgot to, to bring up whenever um, Andrew asked about the, the head of drainages and looking for sun and what gets me excited. Something you have to keep in mind is the hogs, which those, they, they roam a lot. So you might have an area that has hog sign that doesn't have hog sign, you know, the next year or the next month or whatever. Um, so you might be following what you think is a deer trail, and it's just a bunch of hogs that have been working the easiest point, which might be near the deer trail, close to the deer trail. But if you follow it long enough, you're going to run into trees with mud all over it from then rubbing against it. Uh, you're going to run into hog rooting. So you need to make sure that you're actually on deer sign. And like their tracks in the leaves are a lot more of a square hoof versus the deer is a pointed hoof. So I just wanted to mention that you don't want to get too excited and then find out you're hunting a, a big hog herd. Um, but as far as your question, Jacob, uh, the changes that happen are like, night night and day it is so much different like in early season they already don't have very many limited resources because if you have a white oak dropping in one bottom there's probably six more white oaks dropping the next bottom over um, if it's a good acorn year so in early season it is even more drastic so they have they have so many options they have a, a bottom with high stem count here they have say a summer grape there's so much browse and berries that people just completely overlook in the mountains and a lot, not a lot of people talk about this, and I'm not really educated on it. There is so much out there for them to eat. They can walk along and eat like goats. They're just opportunistic feeders. So it's not like where you hear people talk about feed trees. And I don't want to speak in absolutes. There might be someone else that kills deer every year on this. I wouldn't recommend trying a feed tree at all from my personal experience. Unless you really find one that has hot sign, absolutely go for it. I've never had success on that. So the transition from early season where they can they can bed almost anywhere unless it's a drought year every creek bottom has water every creek bottom has summer grapes and uh huckleberry and different things that they can browse on versus when that leaf fall happens especially if it's a good white oak acorn year that's when the white oaks start turning brown so they're even less acidic that's when they start hammering down on that but once again they have food everywhere but once the leaves come off they're restricted to where they feel safe which is the laurel thickets which once again, not speaking in absolutes, I've jumped a lot of mature bucks that are bedded on those road beds because it's a flat spot or even a bench where they can look all the way down a drainage plus use the wind to their advantage. So in those areas, that's when the change happens and the leaves fall off. That's when they're more, um, they don't have the luxury of just being wherever they want, even though they could still be. Um, the food sources change and the cover changes. And another thing I want to bring up, which we can talk about that second buck that I killed, um, that same old timer, which he's killed some deer, and he mentioned to me that one deer that he killed on a really hard, cold winter had laurel leaves in its uh, gut whenever he field dressed it. And uh, I had never seen that, and it sounded interesting because mountain laurel is actually toxic um, to goats and deer. But apparently it's only toxic when they eat a certain amount of it, and then those toxins infect them. And that second buck that I killed on that same ridge, whenever I field dressed him, it was a really cold winter. And the leaves were actually really crunchy because it was a north-facing slope and the leaves completely froze over, uh, which which uh, actually details into the access portion of that. But he had mountain laurel leaves in his gut, which just shows you what the deer will eat whenever they have to. Like, they do what they can to survive. So as far as the transition, early season, they have whatever they want. Like, I don't want to discourage anyone, but good luck narrowing down a mountain deer when the leaves are still green. Um, but once they fall off, like if you're planning a trip to the mountains where you want to learn, please come in November or December. 
Um, but anyways, to answer that question, I know it's super long-winded, but timing is everything in the mountains, whether it's timing the seasonal changes or timing when they're using a certain scrape, six to eight to 12 days or whatever. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K-Chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at TrueLockChokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. No, well, I was going to say also with that, you mentioned like when the leaves come off, it almost seems like they kind of, the way you described it, it seems like they congregate in different specific spots instead of being a lot more just scattered all over the place. And that makes me wonder about where we were just at if we went back when the leaves came off. You know, I already know some good spots. I'd go back in a heartbeat, especially in October. Oh, I was telling him earlier, I was like, man, I have to go back there. Yeah, but, like, because that's how we felt when we were there is with the leaves on, like, the deer were bedded just were everywhere. Like, they are just, like, all over. Like, there there was a spot the last day I sat, which we'll talk more about this, but um, there's a spot where um, everybody else had to leave. I was able to hunt that last evening when everybody else had to leave, and I went to a spot that uh, Shane had hunted, and it's on this – you're coming from the bottom on this big mountainside uh, with some pretty big elevation change, but it's kind of gradual as it goes up and gets steeper and steeper. And you can kind of tell on the map, like on, on topo, that there, there's like a bunch of benches running along that mountain line at different topo elevations. And it's like every time you went, and it's just real rocky, like really rocky, like not a whole bunch of exposed soil. And the deer were like funneled around all these rocks. And as I'd come up onto one bench, like you'd find a bunch of, like just tons of feed sign. But it's like, I don't think this is 
the best spot. I'm going to keep kind of go up, keep going up. I got to the third bench, I just started blowing deer off left and right. I got up on that third bench, and it was like, I'm getting blown at. There's deer popping up all around me. I'm like, I like crawled up in the middle of a freaking group of deer that was bedded there. And, uh, anyways, ended up shifting to a different spot uh, and seeing some seeing some more deer that evening. But um, it was just crazy because it, one thing I was thinking about is with the leaf on, it, it was so thick. Like, there's so many saplings, especially, like, right where that bench really starts to drop off, like, in elevation. So, like, you're coming off the mountain, you hit the edge of the bench, and it drops off again. Right where it drops off, no trees can really grow right there because it's real rocky. So, it gets a lot more sunlight. So, you'd have a lot more saplings growing there. So, it was just like, I mean, you could deer could be five feet from you. You couldn't see it. Uh, but I was thinking, I'm like, with the leaves falling off, you, this would be a lot more open. And I think it would really help isolate where those deer really would congregate at and maybe bed a little bit more with a visual advantage or get close to some thicker stuff. And there wasn't necessarily any mountain laurel, at least in that spot that I got to. Um, but it, it makes me wonder how much that would shift and maybe the deer would like push even higher up in elevation, get higher up in some thicker stuff instead of maybe being, you know, close to that, the bottom third or the, or even the halfway point of that mountain system. Um, so th- that is something super interesting. It kind of makes more sense after like hunting there and, and kind of seeing some of this stuff with leaves on. It's like, you know, the deer would just find a nice place to lay down. They'd lay down just with some kind of wind advantage and just, you know, sit it out and, and wait out and then go try to hit some oaks that were dropping, you know, as the sun was going down. So um, that that is really interesting. Now, also another thing that I- I'm curious with is in the mountains, you're talking about these bucks running these circuits. And we've heard other guys hunting the mountains talking about the same thing, like Nathan Killen's one that comes to mind from Virginia. Uh, talking about like finding these bucks on, on travel corridors in these circuits, so they're running like a, you know, like a oval or circular pattern that might take them days, like you said, days to run it. You know, um, it's not like they're going to be, they're just going to go to one spot, they're turning back around, they're walking right back to you know where they bedded at. It's like they have multiple different different beds, you know, in this general, you know, say you know five thousand acres, and they're making a big loop going through there, especially as you get towards the rut, uh, and timings everything, taking that in consideration. How long, when you find like some of these spots, you're talking about like some of these these head of these ditches, these bowls is a spot you like to hunt. I'm sure there's some other features you like to hunt as well, which we'll talk about. But how long will you give a spot before you'll move on to somewhere else, especially if you only have a couple days a week to maybe hunt? How do you like justify your time on where you sit when you understand that, hey, it's low deer numbers and you're kind of just, you're kind of throwing a dart at the wall, hoping it's going to stick and you have that buck come by. But also like how long will you give a certain spot before you decide to move on in those kind of areas? Right, so that's everything, and I'm going to break it down into, I know I've mentioned this, the two different types of hunting, the, the slip hunting or the walking hunting where you're essentially stalking versus setting up a tree stand. And with the slip hunting, I typically reserve that for just the wildlife management area hunts because I mean, I'm only 24, so I've only done this for so long, but uh, I like to explore areas, so like I use that time uh, for the wildlife management area hunts, which might be three, four, or five days a weekend. And that's where I will basically slip through. And most of the bucks I've killed there have been standing on the ground that I've stalked up on, uh, either you know standing in a certain area for an hour and then moving on, or just stalking up on them and seeing them before they see me. So that's one scenario. But as far as still hunting goes, if I found an area that I'm confident in, like Andrew and I spoke about, where you find that sign where you're like, okay, deer are in here. Let's say let's specifically talk about uh, late November, early December. You're in that point where they're honed in on the laurel thickets because the leaf covers off, and they're also honing in on the doe groups. So in that scenario, if I found an area where I'm really confident in, which that ridge uh, where I killed that large buck where the the old-timer said the access was super uh, difficult, 
I hunted there. I, I still hunt there to this day, but more recently um, in 2019. So that first buck was, I guess, eight years ago. But more recently in 2019, that specific season, I wasted a lot of time hunting this this really nice buck that was on an, an area I wasn't familiar with. I wasted September, October, November hunting that deer, and I gave up on him. And I decided to hone in on that laurel thicket um, where I killed that big one years ago. And I put a camera up um, in one of those gaps on the northern facing slope. You know, the mountain laurel is a little bit more thin. And I, uh, at this point, I was using cellular cameras. So, you know, things have changed a lot since I killed that big one, um, which I just want to say, I know a lot of people think they're unethical. I only own a couple of them, and uh, I don't use them in a sense of when I get a picture taken, I don't run out there and shoot the deer. You can't do that anyways because it's in the mountains, and it takes a minute to get up there. Um, so with that specific deer in that area, uh, this was late December, mid-December, and uh, in Georgia, the, the national forest season ends earlier than the statewide season. So at this point, I'd wasted most of my season, and I just had uh, this little bit of time left put a camera out um, near a scrape in one of the laurel thickets. And I got this buck, a mature eight pointer, just a really cool looking deer. I got him at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, naturally I was at work and I was like, okay, this is interesting. Cause you don't really, you know, get daytime pictures that often, especially in a scrape. Um, well then the following day I got him again at four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, okay, I've just put this camera out where this deer is bedding. And I'm like the luckiest guy in the world as far as mountain hunting. So uh, I essentially set a, a climbing stand in there, what I thought was about 150 yards down the drainage from this laurel thicket. Well, I went up there and hunted that Wednesday evening, the middle of the week. I ran up there after work. And uh, this was a particular cold week before Christmas. All the leaves are frozen on this north-facing ridge because even though the temperature got up to around uh, above freezing, the sun never hit this ridge. It's like walking on bubble wrap, frozen bubble wrap all the way up this mountain. So I hauled up there after work, I climb up in my stand, I sit down and my camera texts me a picture and just by happenstance, it's this buck walking past my camera and then running away. And it, it was just just pure luck that he ran past my camera and I, I know I was the one that spooked him because it was a few minutes before I just got set up. So uh, in that particular area, I knew that buck was hanging out in there because it was later in the season. And uh, once again, most of this, um, comes down to luck but a few days later um which in the mountains you really have to maximize your success even if that means hunting whenever you can um but essentially uh later in that week i, I didn't hunt thursday and then that friday um i basically backed up to that old ladder stand that i had there for for years because i was scared to even get close to his bed because the leaves were still frozen and i killed him two days later not even in the laurel thicket but closer to that scrape where that bluff wall is and uh, that was just at like 8 o'clock in the morning. I was hunting before work. I just ran up there. Didn't really care, care about the crunchy leaves. Um, and I essentially it was luck. But I ended up killing that deer because he was honed in on that area on that laurel thicket. And uh, that's, that's an example of the contrast between when I had raked that path to get closer to the laurel thicket versus not raking the path where I had to pull back off of it and essentially hope for the best of that deer crossing through to check the downwind on that scrape. Uh, which also reminds me, as far as the question, is the deer working in circuits? Sometimes we're just basing that off trail camera pictures, and I think sometimes they might be coming through a little bit more often than we perceive, but they're not actually coming up and working the scrape necessarily. Um, they're just working downwind and sniffing it, which, you know, may or may not be true. Um, 
I know when they do work the scrape, you know it because they destroy it like that tree you spoke about that you found whenever you were uh, hunting that, that place recently. So um, that that's up to discussion. There's no telling if they, if they do come through or not, but uh, definitely the timing on the circuits, um, you just have, that just depends on the deer. So Stuart, one thing I've, I've been wanting to kind of get into specifically with these mountain laurel thickets is when you're going in and you're scouting a laurel thicket, do you always want to be on the top side of those laurel thickets? Do you want to kind of be on the bottom side or sometimes do you get off the edge of them? Like what, what do you take in consideration on like how you'll set up if you're trying to key in on say like a large laurel thicket or even a smaller laurel thicket where you think there's a buck at, like how do you take all that consideration and how you'll position, you know, a stand or a spot if you're going to specifically sit on, you know, potentially catching a buck coming in and out of a laurel thicket? So uh, that's a really good question because not all laurel thickets are created equal. I mean, you can have one depending on if it's north facing or south facing, lower down, higher up, whether it's really thick or a little bit more sparse. And I love the ones that are a little bit more sparse because they will bed on the edges of them. They will bed in them. They just have a lot more options as far as where they can see and escape routes. So like when you jump a buck in the mountains, it's going to take off and you'll hear it, you know, bounding away and it's gone and within a minute or two. Um, sometimes they'll stop and look at you, which is, you know, if you're slip hunting and you're not trying to film a hunt, you can kill a mountain buck that way, absolutely. But as far as choosing between hunting the lower side and the upper side of it, let's say you have a laurel thicket with a drainage on each side. The lower side, um, oftentimes deer, the deer will travel like up and down ridges, but most of the time they're going to be horizontal, um, staying at the same elevation um, along the sides of them. So on either side of that laurel thicket, you can have a trail midway up, uh, all the way at the top, below it. And 90% uh, of the time, the upper third of a ridge is going to be the best no matter what. And I'm not exactly sure why. Um, we can dive into that a little bit. But as far as um, hunting both of them, if you pick a drainage, say on one side of that lower thicket or the other, depending on, say, the wind or something like that, which is an entire another topic as far as the mountains go, because playing the wind is uh, almost impossible. But you can hunt a drainage on one side or the other, and say it's in rifle season when the leaves are off, you can shoot down the ridge and up the ridge, and you can cover both of those trails coming off the top side of it and off the bottom side of it. So as far as trying to hunt in the mountain laurel, I personally don't really like doing that because you're limited to the sight distance because those leaves stay on year-round. So as far as trying to see much, you're limiting yourself to seeing a small portion of the laurel thicket Versus if you were to hunt one side or the other, you can see all the way up the drainage or the bowl or all the way down the drainage where it's more steep, where they have that, say, escape route trail going down. So personally, I like to split the difference and hunt the hardwoods where I can see them coming out of the top of the laurel thicket or coming out of the bottom of the laurel thicket rather than banking all of, uh, of my data into hunting just, say, the upper or the lower. Uh, but that's just me personally. No, that makes a ton of sense. And again, so sitting off to the left or right hand side of it makes a ton of sense. Now, also, you know, with the mature bucks in the area and them using these mountain laurel thickets, when you're seeing these bucks travel, especially as you're getting closer to the rut, you know, how much of a consideration do you take for like midday movement when you're hunting up there? And like, if you had to like look at all the let's say the bucks you've killed the last say six or seven years and could take especially the ones close to the rut like what time of day do you think you've killed majority of those deer is it more in the morning more in the in the evenings more midday what would you take consideration from there so this is just me personally and this is going to go way against whatever you hear like for most of the people on podcast say which i've just heard a lot of people say this so many people love the midday i personally don't unless 
I mean, there are certain days in the rut, especially when it's really cold and like temperature is a factor um, on this question for sure. Um, so evenings, a lot of mountain hunters, if you do any reading, which on Facebook, that can be a, a decent place to do some research. But these days it's mostly just sarcastic comments. But if you go back into like the old forums, like I know there's forums for uh, Alabama and Georgia, that's where you get some more of the actual good intel. And a lot of people don't like evening hunting in the mountains, even in the early season. Um, I personally, I like both. I like morning and evening. I'm not a midday guy, and this could change as I hunt more. But the main reason is I don't like hunting all day, personally. I like the morning time. I like more of a scouting period, and then I like to go back out for the evening. So there have been days where I've hunted all day, and I've seen bucks, um, particular one big one that I would have killed, except I was being stubborn and hunting with a bow when I should have had a rifle in my hands. Um but personally, I like the mornings, especially later in the morning. So um, just for sake of the conversation, let's talk about like the rut toward late season because that's the best time to be out there anyway. So in that time period, let's say you're hunting in the mountains, I prefer, obviously you can see deer from daylight on, especially if you're in an area where there's a hot doe. I've been walking into an area before and heard footsteps and chasing higher up in the laurel thickets on my walk up. And half the times with the thermals pulling down, you can get in your stand in the dark or right at daylight and still hear those footsteps up there because they don't care about you down below. They're focused on the doe and they can't smell you. Um, so daylight can be a time to capitalize, but in a particular time where it's really cold, like in the December, we'll see time where it's like in the low teens, you know, around zero degrees. You know, we'll see that once, once or twice a year. That's where you will see the movement in that nine to 10 o'clock range. And that's a great time to, you better be watching because if they come slipping through those drainages, like in the upper portion of a drainage where it's really skinny, uh, like personally, I, I film my hunts, so that, that changes some things for me. But you should be more patient because if a deer crosses the skinny portion of that drainage, it's not going to disappear for very long before you see it again. But if it's way down below you for whatever reason and it's crossing that drainage, you better take the first shot opportunity that you have because it can disappear for a long time and then you never see it again. Um, which I know doesn't relate to your question, but um, in, in the peak um, hot hunting point of the mountains in that rut late season period, both mornings and evenings are equal to me, in my opinion. Um, I prefer both of them, uh, but that, that late morning time when we have a cold day, uh, if I had to pick one, that would be it. Just out of curiosity, how does your setup change morning to evening? Like, let's say based off of thermals, like you were saying, you like to come in kind of a little bit lower in the mornings where anything up in that Mount Laurel thicket can't smell you. But, uh, do you account for that, that thermal shift like in the morning when, you know, whatever time, 8am, 9am, whenever it happens, the, those thermals start rising, uh, or vice versa in the evening where you're going to have a rising thermal until an hour or so before dark. And then, and then that it's going to switch and it's going to start falling. How do you account for that? Right. So um, what I'm about to say is completely opposite of the entire whitetail industry and specifically to the mountains. If someone has this figured out, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, but the wind in the mountains makes no sense to me, and I don't account a whole lot for that at all. Um, so that's one of those things where I can sit in an area, and I know you all have talked about this before, where the wind will hit a mountain and then roll back over. Um, I still haven't figured that out. But as far as your question with thermals, uh, I have killed deer, mature bucks, with the wind blowing right at them, with me trying to make noises for them to stop, and they do not care. Like, they are just, especially in the rut, 
they're walking along. They don't care what they smell as long as it's not right in front of them. So a lot of times I'll go into an area not even caring about the wind because it's unpredictable anyway. But as far as the thermals, like you asked about, uh, that is one thing that will determine whether I sit on the upper edge of a laurel thicket or another. So that actually relates back to Jacob's question, uh, which unless you take your stand in, in and out each time, you know, sometimes that can be a little bit of a headache. But let's just say you're sitting on the ground in the morning time, you know, with the, when the thermal switch, you might want to walk in closer to daylight. That way you're not spreading a bunch of scent. And another factor with that is uh, running cameras on these scrapes uh, right at the tops of these drainages where a lot of times that's where the scrapes that you want to hunt end up, which we can talk about that uh, later because the scrapes in the bottoms versus the scrapes up there where the deer travel are two totally different things. Um, but as far as uh, the wind goes, um, whenever you're hunting an area and you want to come in, say, in the morning time where the thermals are rising, I like to come in at daylight, especially if I'm slip hunting an area. Because I've got uh, trail camera pictures and videos where these bucks will bed in that early morning hours for whatever reason in the rut. They will bed on these scrapes and lay there for a couple of hours and then get up and move right at daylight. So if you come in hours before daylight, you're going to bump them and have no shot opportunity versus, and this goes back to maximizing your success and putting all the odds in your favor, especially if you're not trying to film the hunt. If you go in right at daylight when legal shooting hours is, this is a good opportunity to jump that deer from that scrape and still have a shot whenever he stops to look at you. Um, so that's an interesting aspect as far as the thermals go, but um, that definitely dictates whether I hunt the lower side of the laurel thicket or the upper side. Um, and I don't have to explain that because it's been talked about plenty of times with the, the thermals and how they pull down on the bottoms in the evening or rise in the morning. And, you know, that's, you can watch fog even do that, how it settles down in the evening and, and follows the drainages and whatnot. So, um, that dictates it a little bit, but like I've said, I've killed bucks with the wind right in their face and me trying to yell at them to get them to stop. So I think it just depends on the situation there. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you just said that's very interesting to me is you're talking about the, with the wind being so unpredictable, you kind of, you kind of toss it out a lot of times. And that's actually something that we've had other guys talk about, more specifically guys who hunt in low deer density areas. Jamie McKay comes to mind. He's a guy who, when he has his spot, He's going to go and hunt there when the time is right. It doesn't matter what the wind is doing because he knows that the deer are going to be in there and he'll kind of figure it out when he gets to the spot. Do you think that's just kind of a function of it being such a low deer density or a, not even a low deer density area, but a, a low pressure area that it's just not the deer aren't as cracked out basically on people and, and you don't have to worry about it as much? Or, or what's your thought process behind that? Absolutely. And it's actually interesting that you bring that up because that uh, made me think of something else. But I think you hit the nail on the head there because they're out there surviving. They feel confident where they're at. They don't get bumped every five seconds. They're not down by some gravel road or something. So they're kind of just doing their own thing. And if a problem's not right in front of their face, they don't freak out about it. Like, for instance, like how I said, I've killed deer where the wind's blowing right at them and I'm trying to holler at them to get them to stop. They're not just bugged out all the time. So if I have a good area of a deer sign, I don't try to make these micro adjustments because the wind swirls anyways. Like like I said, if anyone knows more than me, feel free to reach out. I can't hunt the wind in the mountains. It just does not happen. Like you'll get hit in the face for five seconds and then hit in the back of the neck for two minutes as far as the wind goes. So um, as far, yeah, as far as pressure goes, I think you hit the nail on the head there um, that they, they just don't bug out like that whenever it comes to wind hitting them in the face or anything like that. So, mm -hmm. 
Are there any conditions in particular that you look for that, that tell you that a spot is just ready to go? I think you mentioned a little bit earlier about annual patterns, which is something that's very, very interesting to me, especially when it comes to scrapes. It's like, hey, this this 10-day period, this scrape lit up last year. Like, I need to be back in there during, like, let's say it's like uh, December 1st through the 10th. I need this December 1st through the 10th. I need to be somewhere around that, that spot. Uh how does that how does that play in for you? Is it is it annual patterns or are you looking at like moon phase, uh, weather patterns, or anything like that, or is it just straight up like time of year and what your cameras tell you? Um, so one more thing before we move on to that that I that I meant to mention uh, that it just uh, left my brain as far as the wind. It's like deer, mountain deer, especially in low deer density, low pressure, they're not curious. Like as far as calling or as far as smelling a new scent. They're just not that type of animal. They're out there living life. They're surviving. I've never rattled a mountain deer in. Versus South Georgia, I've grunted and rattled randomly. And next thing you know, I'll have a deer at the base of my tree. So I just want to hit on that as far as the smelling things and the calling. They're just not curious animals. They're surviving. And and obviously, even deer in rut when they're heated up. Um, like, I've got videos of them fighting before just by happenstance on trail cameras. So the rut does happen. But as far as curiosity over sense or calling, it doesn't really happen. Um, but as far as your question on historical data and differentiating one spot from another, um, creek bottoms, you will find rubs and scrapes down there all the time. And a lot of times, it'll just be once or twice a year. You can walk a logging road up a bottom where those thick uh, rhododendron and mountain laurel are. You'll find five, six, seven scrapes in a row. And it's where a buck has come down made those scrapes, used the licking uh, lick limb, made a few rubs, they don't come there again. They just do that while they're traveling through. I know deer aren't territorial, but it's like they're just kind of making their presence known. You can put a camera on it, and you might get a spike or a button head the rest of the year. So that's one of those spots where I would just throw that out the window because it's a creek bottom anyway. Um, and even if there's a feed tree down there in early season, half the time it's at nighttime, like what Jacob talked about with uh, setting up on that one uh, where y'all hunted. So as far as historical data goes, say I do find a scrape that's good, and I know you'll talk about this with other guests, how there are does that come into estrus at the same time of year every year. Uh, this brings into mind another spot, this national forest that I started hunting in the last three to five years, I'd say. And uh, there's an area there that's a moral thicket that uh, because the topography here isn't quite as uh, extreme, it's a little bit more broadened out, uh, the laurel thicket is closer to a creek bottom, but it's still not in the creek bottom. And the upper side of that, uh, there's a scrape there that I found uh, that I killed a six-pointer um, out of in October uh, three years ago. But that's a spot that's historical, just like you're talking about. I can put a camera on that, and all through November and into December, I'll get in a chasing activity. I have great trail camera pictures from that spot because every year, um, this is a little bit, like, as far as national forest spots go, this one's a little bit closer to civilization, and it, it does have slightly higher deer numbers. And the pictures I get from there are great. Like, that's one where I get a, I'll at least get a trail camera picture sent to me, like, several times a week, because the deer are checking in there. I'll get does there, I'll get young bucks, it's like a community scrape, and that spot's historical. Um, and those just vary by where you're at. Uh, that, that scrape is a little bit different from the one higher up where I killed that really large buck. Uh, they're both historical. One's going to get you more action. One's going to get you a little bit uh, less, but both of them come down to timing. Okay, I got you. Jake, what yeah, you got? the 
another thing with all this, <clears throat> which I find interesting, is the access aspect. So, you know, scouting, of course, finding quality deer signs is going to be huge. You know, tracks, punch holes, uh, trails, scrapes, rubs, all that playing factor in around this thicker cover, which the thicker cover that we're focusing in on is mountain laurel thickets. But with that, the access, it seems like predominantly you like to majority of the time, majority of the time access from the bottoms. But is there ever times that you'll come in from the top or side hill around to the elevation you're trying to hunt? Or do you predominantly like to only focus on how can I come up from the bottom and go straight up to that spot? Right. So accessing from the top is kind of a rare thing anyways, because unless you have like a forest service road that snakes all the way around the mountain and the dead ends at the top where you have that uh, luxury to walk in from the top, um, even then in that aspect, whenever you're walking on the top, I feel like your sound just broadcasts everywhere. And like, this is a huge factor in turkey hunting, but whenever you're walking on the top, you're like telling everything that that you're there versus coming in from the bottom, which is uh, the most likely uh, application anyways, because that's where the road's in anyways. You know, it's not like there's, if you want to come in from the top, most of the time you're walking up the side of the mountain and then back down the other. Um, so as far as accessing, say, a laurel thicket, like what we've talked about, if you can get any one of these drainages that has a creek, um, which that buck that I spoke about, which I may not have got a lot of details on, but the one where the leaves were frozen, I actually walked in that creek because that's the only thing quiet about the entire mountain because everything's frozen. So if you can walk in that flowing water on the wet rocks and stuff, that's a great way to access. It's similar to like, uh, I've heard people speak about ditches and like agricultural land where you can get your sound uh, below everything and kind of slip through the creek. Those drainages are a great thing to walk up. It's just, you just have to watch your step because the, the rocks are really slick a lot of times. But that's a really silent way to get in if you can hit one of those creeks and walk those all the way to where you want to hunt, um, even if it means side-hilling a little bit in between the creeks. Gotcha, yeah. And also, another thing with access, and I've been wanting to bring this up for a little bit, but you're kind of creative when it comes to footwear uh, in the mountains <laughs> for uh, climbing some steep stuff. So talk to me a little bit about some, uh, some uh, I think it's baseball cleats that you wear. What, what's, the, what's the thought process <laughs> on these? Right. So uh, anyone listening to this might roll their eyes a little bit right here. And I'm a minimalist. Okay. Like I just don't spend a lot of money on hunting gear and that's just personal preference. It's not that I couldn't, it's just, that's how I am. I don't carry a lot in the woods with me. And I say that to say, I've not, I've not tried all these high dollar hunting boots that people wear, but I started out wearing uh, like knee high rubber boots and snake proof boots and insulated boots. And I'm telling you, uh, your energy is everything in the mountains. And uh, if you want to get gassed really quick, put on a pair of rubber boots and try to walk up right after the leaves fall in November and uh, slide everywhere and uh, walk across a bluff maybe where you don't know there's rocks below you. And uh, when you when you bust your back a few times, uh, it'll change your thought process. So I don't know, to be honest, I don't know if it was deer season or turkey season that I uh, came to the idea of putting on one of my pair of baseball cleats uh, but I put one of those on, and the first time I walked in the mountains, I felt like I could walk forever because they're breathable, they're flexible, they're not waterproof, so that's something you have to deal with, and they're not insulated. But, you know, if, if you use hand warmers or foot warmers, you can uh, sort of accommodate that as far as the temperature. But when it comes to lightweight and the, and the traction, in my opinion, you can't beat a baseball cleat, and someone might prove me wrong uh, with, with an ankle boot. 
And uh, I'm telling you, I've never seen this before, and I know it shows up in some of my pictures on on social media or whatever, and some people probably roll their eyes. Um, but if you could, if you can find a comfortable baseball cleat that's lightweight, uh, I don't know if soccer cleats are this way. I think they're a little bit more stiff for kicking or whatever. Um, and I've not done a lot of research into it. But uh, if you can use the right equipment, whether it be a lightweight tree stand or a baseball cleat on your foot, you're gonna you're gonna put the odds in your favor a lot more. Mainly because you're gonna you're gonna keep that energy, and you can be more quiet with a baseball cleat like. That turkey hunting in the mountains uh, or deer hunting, it puts the odds in your favor. And I know some people are uh, rolling their eyes right now, but I'm telling you, don't knock it till you try it. Yeah, see, dude, I'm sold. Well, hold, I'm sold. Hold, I want to go get some baseball cleats. So, yeah. So the one thing I, I'll say about the cleats, and I've thought about this because I played football and soccer back in high school, and uh, you know, so I thought about soccer cleats, but I never played baseball. But like with a baseball cleat, you know, a lot of them are kind of like high tops. I mean, you know, so you have like some ankle support. Um, but the thing I've got question of, I feel like they'd be slick on walking around any kind of rocks or anything like that, or like being loud on rocks. Are you using like the composite cleats or are they metal uh, spike cleats? No, they're not metal. So I've not used metal. I've never even used them in sports. So I don't know. I, I would assume, well, those would be crazy anyways, because if you're going to hunt a tree stand, that's going to be impossible on a tree stand. You're going to be clanking on that. I use the molded uh, rubber style. And look, I, I don't like to speak in absolutes. I only have my limited experience. I've only been doing this for so long. I'm not trying to sound like I know anything more than anyone else. I went right up the side of rock faces with my cleats. And I'm not trying to sell anything. Obviously, I'm not sponsored by Nike or anything. But I'm telling you, I've walked on, I've walked on everything with those things. And uh, if, if some younger person, younger than me or someone new to it, asked me about footwear, I wouldn't tell them to spend $300 on a pair of boots. I'd tell them to go get a pair of Nikes. So <laughs> that's just my recommendation on that. And there's a few other things as far as equipment and, and different things like that that I do, but I'm I'm the farthest thing from fancy you can get. So well look, you get some neon orange ones. It goes towards your uh, total yeah, orange that you get wear during rifle season. So you know <laughs> five hundred square inches, right? <laughs> yeah that's that's that's, pro that's probably you know you know 150 square inches yeah, on, you know for, for both pair of boots or for a pair of boots. So I did um, Jacob I might look into that. <laughs> get it patented I, I'm sure the game will really appreciate that too um but uh no, no, I've, I've thought about that but i've kind of gone back uh like where we hunted one thing i've realized i thought the ground would be so much more rocky and there is a lot of rocks but there's such like a a deep like dark rich soil like composites the mounds i guess mm -hmm. just from all like all the leaf litter over like just years and decades breaking out hundreds of years breaking down it's like such a dense like fluffy soil that you're walking on and you're right like i use a very stiff uh like mountaineering boot which it's a very it's expensive boot. it's like 400 400 something dollar boot but it's really stiff so you're able to like when you're climbing up that stuff you don't have to put your full foot on the ground on that steep slope in order to make contact you kind of just stick your toe in and that stiff soil allows you to almost kind of like springboard up so your heel really doesn't touch the ground if you're walking on your toes kind of going up it climbing a steep face and um, we had uh, one, one of my camera guys on, on this trip, Nate, he had, he had some other boots that were a lot more flexible sole. And it, I know it, it was a lot harder for him going up some of that steeper face with those, those more flexible sole boots that weren't very aggressive tread. But like with the, the football cleat as or the baseball cleat aspect of it, um, to be able to have more traction in around some of that soft soil, I think would be very interesting. And I, th I don't know if I told you, but like I, I hunted – Arkansas this past year uh, in the mountains for turkeys this past spring 
I was trying to climb a bluff wall to get to some birds I knew that were roosting up on this bluff wall coming back to roost. And it took us, me and my brother, 45 minutes to climb up this bluff. And it wasn't just a sheer rock face. It was this really steep, soft soil, and it had rained like two days previous. And I was I was wearing knee highs. I, I, I don't know why. I should have had – I'll be honest. Even if I had my regular hiking boot, my, my like low is on, I don't know if it would have helped all that much because uh, my rubber boots are pretty aggressive traction. But I was climbing up and just sliding right back down. And it was like a 30- or 40-foot wall we were trying to get up, and it was kind of terraced and stuff. And uh, it, it was terrible, dude. It was terrible. But if I would have had cleats on, that would have been completely different story. Like I probably could have got up in 15 minutes easily and just got up over the top of it and then been up on the bench where the turkeys were at. Um, right. So and that's an interesting aspect. So you mentioned digging your toes into the, into the face of the mountain, and that, that's one way to do it, and I do that plenty. But with cleats, and I might have actually tried this first with tennis shoes and then transitioned to cleats. It's been six or seven years, so I don't really remember. Um, but it allows you to side hill, and like the way I walk a lot is I will zigzag up the mountain. So I'm walking with the, the outer edge of my foot and then turning and walking with the outer edge of my foot the other way, and it conserves energy because if you're just walking with your toes digging in, you're using all those muscles, and it, it makes your legs start burning. Versus you can take a little bit smaller steps and kind of zigzag left, right, left, right, depending on if you're walking around rocks. And you, you can, because like, it's kind of a personal thing. I'll see how far I can go before I stop and take a breath, which I'm a smaller guy. I'm skinny. This may not apply to everyone, but I'll see how far I can walk before I'm completely out of breath. And walking just straight up, you know, with your high kneeing, basically, because, you, you know, if it's steep, you run out of breath a lot quicker versus if you zig left, zig right, zig left, zig right. You're not taking as, as high of steps and wearing cleats. You're not slipping out from under you and like busting your, you know, the side of, of your body. So that's how I like to walk. And another tip I would give someone, if you're making a long haul in, especially if you're packing something out or whatever, never take a step down. If your goal is to go up, say if there's a, a fallen tree or a log, even if you have to climb something a little bit steeper, if you if you take the bottom side of a, a laydown tree or a bottom side of a bluff, you're walking that much more to get back up towards your goal versus if you just stay up, 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 up. So I never loop down around something because half the time you'll hit some loose terrain anyway and slip. So um, that's one of my main things. And you know what? There's plenty of people that kill big deer not wearing cleats. But if you cannot wear yourself out getting in there and you can be a little bit quieter because – I've killed a few deer standing on the ground, not even in a tree stand. And if you walk, if you have the ability to walk like a deer where you're getting that penetration of the leaves, you can see them before they even see you. If you walk quietly and then stop and listen, stop and listen, I've snuck up on deer and turkeys and they don't even know I'm there. Cool. Awesome. Nice. No, that, that's super fascinating. I'll say this as kind of a, a last point, Stuart, uh, kind of getting to the point to wrapping up. What would be like, you know, one of your biggest pieces of advice, we have a lot of listeners in Georgia. Um, and you know, some guys probably hunt that North mountain range or they live somewhere up there and they're hunting some private land, but they're trying to like get more experience on maybe trying to step out in public. What would be like a big piece of advice you'd give those guys that if they're trying to get into whether it's public land hunting or hunting that more aggressive terrain, uh, steeper terrain, what would you tell them to kind of focus on or key in on for this season or to start building some confidence in the area to hopefully be able to have success with us for this year, or maybe going into next year? So uh, to answer your question, this is, this is so complex and I'm not just saying that, that it does make it hard to just, to just narrow it down to that. But I would say uh, starting off, have the right mindset, know that you're going to work for it, know that you may not see many deer and know that it's going to be 
different than where you're from if you're not from the mountains. So those main three things are something to start out with. And then the next two things I would say is break it down into seasonal changes. So don't come to the mountains in September with, with high hopes, okay? If you're going to make a trip here, make it during the rut. And if you uh, don't want to burn a tag, go to one of the wildlife management areas and put boots on the ground. So that would be uh, that aspect. And then as far as narrowing down where to go once you're there, um, pull up wintertime imagery. Do not look at summertime or fall time it's, unless you want to look for hickory trees if you're bear hunting because those show up as yellow during the, the, the leaf change. You can see that they're super bright yellow because that's what the leaves turn to. Um, narrow down on wintertime imagery before you even put boots on the ground, your coniferous forest, uh, your hemlocks, which they kind of look uh, just kind of like a blurred green, um, uh, your white pines, they, they actually look like palm trees, kind of like you can see the, the bows coming out or the boughs coming out on wintertime imagery. And then your laurel thickets, they're under um, the main um, closed canopy forest. So in wintertime imagery, you see the gray color. And then you see the kind of like a greenish understory, and those are your mountain laurels. And you can relate that to um, where if you're scouting, uh, say, a civilized area, you can break it down by eliminating all that coniferous stuff because I don't even like being in it. So that's one way to narrow that down. And then once you get out there, make sure you're not looking at hog sign. Make sure you're not looking at bear sign. Make sure you're looking at that deer sign and then narrow it down to those laurel thickets, the path of least, least resistance. And uh, basically just hang in there and uh, do as much learning as you can because it, it's going to be it's going to be a different experience. And uh, I know that there, there's definitely tougher hunting out there, I'm sure. And I'm not trying to sound like, you know, our hunting's any more special than anything else. But uh, if you don't change your mindset, you're going to be you're going to hit a wall really quick. So, um, like I said, it's so complex. There's so many more things we could talk about. But if I had to narrow it down, I'd be those I'd, it would be those things, the mindset the narrowing down where you even want to start. And then once you have boots on the ground, narrow down what you want to capitalize on and then decide if you want to still hunt, like set up a tree stand or whatever, or slip hunt through the woods and uh, just keep that mindset all the way through. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Stuart, we appreciate you joining us for this podcast episode. Guys, if you've enjoyed this episode, go leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Got a lot of new reviews, especially that Rick Cope episode, episode 510. Got a lot yeah. of cool responses. So go leave some Got new. Rolling in. Yeah, go leave us another uh, five star written review on Apple Podcasts. And guys, remember, all these podcasts are on YouTube as well. So you can head over to YouTube. You can watch all these videos, all these video podcasts. And uh, make sure you stay tuned for the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman. We'll get some really cool stuff in this Thursday's break, this third April. I can't talk. This Thursday breakdown episode is going to be a really good one because we're going to go into a little more detail from our side of the Georgia trip and some other stuff that we've had going on. So appreciate y'all watching. Appreciate y'all listening. Thank you, Stuart, for joining us. And we'll catch y'all back for another episode on the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Y'all stay Southern. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case 
case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find you know a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.